Is it a red dry? Of course it is. It's course Murphy. It's, it's Murphy red. Brown Red. We have one primary color on our logo, and it is red. Uh, although I also will say things like, "This is Gilda Red." This is Gilda. I, I I do that sometimes, and now I've created Carrie Fisher Purple. Oh, fair, absolutely. I'll be like, "That's Carrie Fisher Purple." Sure is. I should have named crayons. That was my other calling. <laughs> I just thought of Carrie Fisher naming crayons. Oh, that's good. That would have been so good. Oh man, she would have come up with things like bastard blue. Uh, forest. (laughs) (laughs) I miss her so much. I do too. Mm. Ready graphics? Ready theme? This episode is about staying hydrated. Drink that water. This version of Murphy, it's unpalatable to me. Oh, the friend dilemma. I want this episode to have a running ticker of every time someone says friend or best friend. And Frank looks like a child at Christmas. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode six, Buddy (laughs) Schmuddies. That was so cute. (laughs) Thank you. Buddy Schmuddies. Kind of really appropriate for me to do the Yiddish type-esque opening. It does make sense. Also, yes. it's kind of the ice cream flavor I didn't know I needed. <laughs> buddy what, Schmuddies. What's in Buddy Schmuddies? Is it like oh, a I Rocky like Road? Some, yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I always go for Rocky Road. Um, mm. But I also feel like there's a bit of like a caramel swirl. It's what makes the schmuh part of it. By the way, I'm Lauren. Oh, hey, I'm Jesse. And this episode was directed by Barnett Kelman. It was written by friend of the pod, Russ Woody. And it aired October 30th, 1989. And just for a little context, our last episode aired the day before the famous San Francisco earthquake of 1989. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also found this really cool quote from 1989 from Vanity Fair from an interview with Candace Bergen. Now, it's from February, so it's a little bit, you know, before, more towards season one. But she said, I can't believe I'm in a sitcom. I refuse to call it that. I just say I'm doing a comedy series. (laughs) It's so interesting to me because the... The way we phrase things as far as legitimacy and how we get excited about it, the idea that sitcom was something that she was like, "Mm, that's just not quite the right word for it. Yeah, and I've heard that Diane English doesn't like to call it a sitcom either. Mm -hmm. It's it's a comedy series. And that you know what? There is sort of a bad connotation to the word sitcom. Oh, absolutely. Well, even, I mean, I think the the modern, uh, what am I trying to say? I think the modern version of that is people working on web series. Now, yeah. people don't oh, want to say web series. Uh, working on Just Super, my project, with our friend Rebecca Kopeck, we always referred to it as an online sitcom. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Because when you said web series, people would be like, oh, cute. What are you working on? Yeah, it's amazing, right? I mean, words have power in so many A different um, areas and venues, and it just makes me think of feminism. Exactly. You know, people have used the word against what feminism really stands for. Mm-hmm to be a quote-unquote dirty word and standing for something that it doesn't necessarily stand for Mm -hmm. because people can change the meaning of words. Then you have the backwards of that, right, where people are uh, from the LBGTQ community taking the word queer Mm -hmm. and sort of reclaiming it. Oh, I've talked about that a lot with friends, especially about colorful language that has to do with female anatomy. Hmm. And how much a part of that is the fact that these words that are about our bodies um, or well, the uh, naturally, the cis female bodies are often taken away from us and used euphemistically and Mm. how we could take them back and take the power away. Like words can't have power over you if it's now yours. And so reclamation is a huge deal. And I I think it's very interesting that the the sitcom is kind of coming back and now it's being used as a nostalgic term as opposed to a euphemism. Good point, nostalgia term. That's very true. I mean, Mm. we have, this is going to air or uh, drop afterwards, but as we're recording this, this Wednesday, there's going to be a live 
filming of two episodes of Norman Lear's famous Mm -hmm. comedies. We have All in the Family and the Jeffersons. Yeah. And at first I was kind of like, oh, I I can't believe we're doing this. But now I'm actually very excited about it because taking something that was so seminal of the time and is still relevant today, which is what we're doing, right? And I think it'll it'll actually have a really big impact because people are going to tune in who wouldn't normally maybe turn on an old sitcom, quote-unquote, because maybe one of their favorite actors are in it. They want to see Will Ferrell. They've heard about this. They want to see Wanda Sykes. And then you have everyone else who goes, I want to see Wanda Sykes play Wheezy. Oh, <laughs> like, exactly. That's interesting, yeah. Well, and it's, uh, um, I, I think we see it a lot. We're very used to it in the in the theater culture because right? we yeah. get to, we, I mean, we grow up being like, oh, I want to be that character in that play. That doesn't happen as much with film and television. They're not, you know, remakes are becoming more of a thing mm-hmm. or, and even revamping, but, and reviving, as we've talked about. But, within the theater, we're always like, oh, I want to see that person play that part. And there's that idea that you can see people kind of step into roles or get to play a role again because they did it the first time. It's uh, TV is starting to feel very theatrical to me in that way. Yeah. And the element of doing it live is getting people to tune in. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. new thing, right? We're going back to Playhouse 90. Yeah. The way to get people to tune in now is to make it different. How is it different? It's live. Exactly. I mean, all of the musicals right now, all the broadcast yeah. musicals. It's because people aren't tuning in live like they used to. So mm-hmm. what can you do to make them actually do it, make it really actually live? I mean, SNL now is live on both coasts. Oh, yeah, which is really fun. It's a, it's a really cool concept to have things actually be live again. And I mean, as we're recording this, tonight is the Game of Thrones finale. And, you know, there's a whole thing about like, I mean, I'm going to be losing sleep tonight because I won't be home when it first airs. And by the time I get home late tonight, I have to watch it because... Spoiler culture, I need to watch it yeah, when it happens. Which is a whole other discussion, right? Oh, we could go down this rabbit hole yeah. for days, but let's talk about Buddy Schmuddies. Yes. Well, well, actually, real quick, we have some business from some past yes. episodes that we thought you guys would really like to know. Mm-hmm. So as we said, we put on the the Instagram and the Twitter for the episode TV or Not TV, which if you haven't listened to, is the episode with Morgan Fairchild, episode four. Please go back and listen. And there's a fictional news magazine within the show, Kelly Green, Mm -hmm. and it was TJI. And we had, for some reason, both of us not thought about what this could possibly stand for. I think because I don't personally myself, I was so focused on everything else. uh, I forgot about the easy stuff. (laughs) Yeah, you know, (laughs) as we do. And so we got a couple of really good suggestions. And then Craig, who wrote the episode, so Craig asked if he could submit his answer or if it was you know, unfair because he knew. And I went, oh my God, of of all the people, we didn't, that's the one thing we didn't ask him in the email. Uh Uh-huh. So Jesse, have you thought about it? Do you you have an idea of what the fictional show within the fictional show, Kelly Green, the magazine show stands for? The title? Yes, because I want to see if maybe you're close to it now that you've thought about it. Because now that I heard this one, I can't think of anything else because it's so perfect. Ooh, here's, all right. That was TJI, right? Yeah. Um, I'm going to say, no, I have not thought about it. Um, and now I, I feel like I should have. But what I'm going to say is that it stands for Tucker Just Investigates. <laughs> uh, he's the Jim of the show. And oh, none of okay. you know him. But you should respect Tucker and his work. Oh, well, of course. Tucker is... Uh, just Investigates. Yeah, that, that's yeah. perfect. It's not yeah, about Kelly at all. Well, I, I felt very stupid... When I saw this. In fact, this was suggested by someone, a couple of people, two people suggested this, and I went, oh, well, that's it. So TJI 
mm-hmm. stands for this just in. Oh, well, that's super obvious. I know, right? Everyone like, is uh, smarter than us. <laughs> yeah, so so obvious and did not think about it. <laughs> Oops. We so were that's focused perfect. on the deep dives, everyone. We really were. <laughs> I also want to clarify that when I was talking about Connie Chung leaving the news, I was actually going off of a lot of what she was saying now and mm-hmm. had not really realized that she was actually most likely fired. At least mm. that was the understanding at the time. Because yeah. afterwards, I watched an interview talking about her on, on Charlie Rose. Sorry, guys. But uh, <laughs> And they were talking about this being a big deal that she had been fired. And obviously, after the fact, you're going to see something through a filter and you're going to talk about it in a different way. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to clarify that that was probably what was happening at the time, whether it was true or not. And then after that, she shortly left uh, CBS. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So let's go into the episode. Let's do it. So we start out with one of my favorite songs, Ain't No Mountain High Enough from 1967. song. Sung by Tammy Terrell and Marvin Gaye. We've had them on the show before. Mm -hmm. Now, I also want to clarify, this is the clarifying episode, that originally (laughs) when we talked about Tammy Terrell and Marvin Gaye in a duet that they sang... I had mentioned that they had been a couple, which had surprised me, and apparently I was wrong. And I realized that I was taking that information for something that I was told when I was a wee child. And you know, sometimes you're told things when you're very young, and you start to think it is fact. Oh, I still have not forgiven my mother for telling me when I was like four years old, because I was probably being annoying, that Chili's was her favorite restaurant. And I believed that until I was about 17 years old, that my mom's favorite restaurant was Chili's. Still haven't forgiven her for that. Yeah, and it sort of gets melded together and you forget how you learned it. And they were actually very close, like, but more like a brother and sister, which is interesting because now we're talking about them for this episode, which is is very much about Frank and Murphy's relationship. They're yeah, friendship. very much They're that very dynamic. close friendship. Yeah, and it really sounds like Tammy and Marvin had a very similar close friendship. Good for them. Yeah, platonic. But what today I'm going to talk about, because we do have another Tammy Terrell Marvin Gaye song coming up in the future of season two and more Marvin Gaye. So I'm going to focus on the creation of this particular song, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, because it's so fascinating. Get it. So this song peaked at number 19 on the Billboard's pop chart. And then in 19 1970, after Diana Ross left the Supremes, there was a later version, and her version actually went to number one. Surprising, which I was surprised about, it's written by Valerie Simpson and Nick Ashford, who many people may know as the singing group Ashford and Simpson. And of course, they were married in real life. I feel kind of dumb that I had no idea that they had this long career, kind of like Carole King, as songwriters. Mm -hmm. Some people may know them particularly for their hit Solid, which, funny fact, was used at Barack Obama's 09 inauguration in which they rewrote it as Solid as Barack, (laughs) which I don't remember and I find hilarious. So part of their biography is actually part of the creation of the song, which is really quite beautiful. So they met in church in 1962. Uh, He had just moved to New York after high school in Michigan. He was hoping to become a dancer, but unfortunately, things just really weren't working out, and he ended up homeless and living in a friend's apartment. So he was actually in this church getting a hot meal, and he stopped to listen to the choir perform where Valerie was singing, and she noticed him, even though later on they were introduced by mutual friends. It's really, really sweet. So she was still in high school, though, so she was about a year younger. And then eventually when they met she found out that he was singing for a gospel group as well called the Monarchs, and she sang for a group called the Followers, and she convinced him right away to come sing with her group. (laughs) So they started writing music together, and their first hit song was Let's Go Get Stoned, 
which was co-written by Joshi, I hope I say this right, Joshi Armstead for The Coasters in 1965. But many people know it because it became a number one hit for Ray Charles later that year. Oh. And for that reason, the song took the attention of songwriter Eddie Holland of Jesse. Holland does your Holland. Yes, at Motown. <laughs> So they knew this was their big break. In fact, talks that Dusty Springfield heard the song and really wanted it, and mm. they refused to give it to her because they knew this was their chance to get into Motown. So Nick told Valerie about the lyrics that he had come up with that seemed perfect. One day when he was walking down Central Park West, where he lived with his friend, uh, he was worried about whether he'd be able to still stay in the city, you know, not having any money and wanting to live his dream. And mm. he looked up and he noticed that the buildings along the park looked like mountains. I know. And so the words came out, ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you. And the you meant success. I know, it's so beautiful. So they recorded a demo. That's the great thing about having two singers, right? They recorded their own demos. Mm -hmm. And Motown wanted it right away for Tammy Terrell. She'd actually not had a hit yet, interesting enough. Oh. So Paul Reiser, who was a, a ranger at Motown at the time, said that he first heard the demo in his office in late 66, and he liked it. He felt the song had sensitivity and strength, which is really beautiful, and that the first thing he did was record the rhythm track with the Funk Brothers. Now, oh. the famous rattlestick sound at the introduction is actually the hitting metal rim of a snare drum with the sticks. He felt that it added mm -hmm. suspense before the vocals came in. So Tammy huh. recorded it first, and then after that, the producers decided to make it a duet. So it wasn't necessarily meant to be a duet at the beginning. Oh, that's weird. So since Marvin Gaye had already had a hit with Kim Weston with It Takes Two, they felt this was perfect. So he recorded it after. And something else that Riser says is he felt that Marvin was amazing. Quote, he overdubbed his vocals so it wrapped around hers as the two of them were in love, singing to each other in the studio. Oh. When they were not. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Now, just a short little background on the song as well. As I mentioned, Diana Ross did record it, but she also recorded it with the Supremes as a duet with the Temptations. And then when Diana Ross left the Supremes, Barry Gordy wanted Nick and Valerie to produce her first album, and they completely reorchestrated this song to the point of which many people don't realize that the version with Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell and the version with Diana Ross alone are the same song. Many people believe that it is actually a different song with the same name. Oh, weird. In fact, it's a longer song. It was very popular to have longer versions, like eight, six minutes, particularly they were thinking of Isaac Hayes had done it recently at the time. But a mm -hmm. lot of producers didn't like mm -hmm. that because it can't be a single. You know, you want radio play back then. That was how you got popular. And they mm -hmm. felt that the radio stations didn't want to play it. But they really pushed it. And eventually the radio stations did start playing it. And then eventually writing so many love songs, uh, Valerie says, that made them fall in love. And in 1974, they were married. Oh. Uh, some other songs you might know that they wrote together that are actually in Murphy Brown are You're All I Need to Get By, Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing, which we will eventually get to in a couple of episodes, and Your Precious Love, which we messed up in season one and had the wrong song. <laughs> Oops. So the Tammy Terrell and Marvin Gaye version was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1999 and is considered by many one of the most important songs ever released by Motown. And it's been recorded by many, many, many people. So that I just men, 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 fell men. in love with that description. It's so interesting and amazing. 
All right, let's go into the episode. So this starts with the song and a couple of really great moments from Frank and mm-hmm. Murphy from the past and their friendship in the series. This was a really rewarding opening, I just have to say, seeing this series of clips. I was like, oh my gosh, I know that one, and I know that one. So the first thing we have is, as it says in the Murphy Brown book, I love this, a freshly detoxed Murphy from <laughs> Respect. From Devil with a Blue Dress, this is all season one, by the way, guys. A Murphy tries to block Frank's long past a gym. Then we have off-the-job experience. Frank jumps into Murphy's bed. Frank eyes a woman in the next table at Phil's and kisses Murphy on the forehead in Why Do Fools Fall in Love? One of our favorites, Frank and Murphy meet up the first time in Phil's mm-hmm. Sierra, 1977. And then we have the last one, which is Frank crawls over Murphy on her couch in baby love because he can't have sex with her, which is a perfect place <laughs> to end. So then we go into the episode, and what I love about this is that we have the end of the song, Tammy Terrell and Marvin Gaye, and then we hear Murphy, who's obviously been listening to the song on her uh, Walkman, Mm. I'm guessing, (laughs) because there's no iPhones or iPods back then, just butchering the song. What I love is that I tried to type Murphy very fast, and my spell check tried to change it to murder. Ooh! Uh, Murphy was definitely murdering this song. And it's a full elevator, which tends to happen when Murphy's singing, because people can't stand it, and she gets pushed off the elevator. And she's dancing and singing and using the hand motions. But it's just so unbearable. Yeah, it's bad. That a, it's uh, bad. It's really bad. Well, again, Candace Bergen is the genius of the bad singing. She's hilarious. It's hilarious. She knows when to elongate certain parts of the song. She's got also a big, giant pink donut box in her hand. I always thought as a kid that all donut boxes had to be pink because there are always these big pink boxes on Murphy Brown. And It's a very specifically like 90s TV and movie thing that like, yeah, donuts come in pink boxes. So what I, what I love about this is we have a, a new person in the office. We have Bill, who as she's doing a, a hand gestures all of the girl groups, and she goes wide, which is great. He, uh, he pulls out the jack from her Walkman so that she will stop singing. <laughs> uh, he, actually, I should say, I should preface this. He rolls over in his rolling chair. It's a lovely yeah, moment. Yeah, she goes, what's the matter, Bill? Can't handle so much raw talent this early in the morning? Ha. I wrote, MB is in a good mood. She's in a great mood. Her secretary is not so much in a good mood. We don't know this yet, but Murphy offers her the first select of the box of donuts. We have another unhappy secretary, but unhappy for other reasons. For all the reasons. Yeah. Uh, and she goes, ha, ah, what the hell? What should I care if my thighs balloon? Apparently her husband has left her for a waitress at Denny's. She hasn't dated in a year. Her cat got run over in the driveway and her son's in jail. I might as well be dead. Murphy just goes, okay, great to have you on board. She's so happy about what we know she's going to be revealing. I wrote, Murphy's mood cannot be broken. I think the the offering of the coveted first donut is a very good sign that uh, Murphy is starting at a high and can only go low. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and as we go along in the episodes, we know that she's offering up a lot of things, including being nice, which is something that she will yes. later later regret. What I love is that uh, the next thing is uh, Auntie Murphy, as Murphy says, brings the donuts to the FYI staff. We have Corky, Jim, and Frank. And Frank looks like a child at Christmas. He does. I I also have to say, this version of Murphy, it's unpalatable to me. <laughs> like It's so bright and sunshiny that I'm just like, oh, no, I need something to go wrong. I need the cynic back. I need her back now. It is a little bit jarring, but I, I always love when she's like this because you know something is going to happen. Well, exactly. You know that something's about to burst that bubble. Because it's so hard. It's still about ego, right? Like she's over the top because 
she's got the best story and, and everyone's going to love mm-hmm. it. And she's going to be center of attention and, and she's going to be amazing. Like she always is. Uh, and when mm-hmm. she, she offers all of these assortment of donuts, the every kind you'd want. And this, this little part actually is a famous outtake, which is mm-hmm. she goes, and for Frank, my old pal, my foxhole buddy, there's a bunch of outtakes where she just can't get through it. She just keeps saying it and laughing. I'm trying to find the clip and I can't find it, but they definitely had to do this a couple of times. And so Frank guesses what she has for him, which is a chocolate torpedo, which I'm not sure if I've ever seen that kind of donut. It looks like an eclair. It looks like an eclair or a long john. As Do you know what a long john is? I don't. My mother didn't really ha- let us have donuts when I was a kid. It's kind of like a rectangular filled donut. It's uh, wider than and a little flatter than a than an eclair, but essentially mm-hmm. it's a long filled pastry. Okay, that, I'd say that's probably what it is then. Yeah, I of course forgot to you know do the simple thing of googling what is a torpedo donut, which again we do the deep dives here, people. We don't think about the easy Google. We um, don't. <laughs> um, I've never heard of a torpedo, so I'm going to imagine that it's a long john because that's my favorite, and now I want one. Yeah, man, I want one too. Mm. So Murphy says, yes, it is a chocolate torpedo and she has one for you and one for me. (laughs) Jim comments about how chipper Murphy is because obviously that is very unusual. And she goes, oh, just the best story of the year. But then Frank interrupts to say that there is only one chocolate torpedo. Oh, the friend dilemma. (laughs) The friend dilemma. But it's really sweet because Frank says that he knows how much she loves them. And so he offers it up to her. And she goes, ordinarily, I would, Frank. You know me. But today I'm feeling especially generous. And he's like, oh, it kind of forces it to her. And she's, she insists that Frank eat the donut, to which Frank eats it like a small child. Uh, he turns it into an airplane, uh, licks yeah. and bites it chomps on it to the point of which he looks like i wrote that he is having sex with the donut yeah there's a lot going on with that donut i also want to say that i want this episode to have a running ticker of every time someone says friend or best friend (laughs) it is said so many times clearly on purpose to really drive home so so this is an episode that can be a drinking game Oh, yes. Mm. Ooh, well, that oh, might wait. change this episode for me as far as ranking in the series. I know, but now I'm thinking maybe it's wrong to have a drinking game in a series about an alcoholic. Oh, about a recovering alcoholic? <laughs> well, that w- that would be respectful for us not to turn that into a drinking yeah. game. <laughs> Second thoughts, but, you know. Oops. Well, you know, you're, you're non-alcoholic. You're Perrier. You, exactly. It'll help you stay yes. hydrated. Yes, exactly. This episode is about staying hydrated. Drink that water. Yes. Drink your water. I had uh, had an idea recently that every time I want to look at my phone, I should instead take a drink of water, and that'll help me mm. stay hydrated. That makes me think of the things where people say like, oh, to you know, keep yourself in shape uh, during commercial breaks, back you know, when people had commercial breaks regularly. Yeah. You know, do 10 push-ups and 10 sit-ups and blah, 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 blah. And I love how Americans feel this grand need to budget and bribe ourselves into health. <laughs> I know, right? I have to trick myself to be hydrated. It's sad. So I, I had a thought. So Miles comes hmm. in, right? And he, he says how shocked he is that everyone's there. And then it dawned on me. I think that no one's ever there on time, not because everyone is late. I think because they're all waiting for Murphy. Oh, my God. That's so right. Right? Because, I mean, a lot of times she is known for being late. Mm-hmm. But many of these sort of... Uh, shot out of a cannon or or the openings of episodes because she's the lead start mm-hmm. off with her entering a room 
So I thought, what if like people were on time, but they saw that Murphy wasn't there and they knew, okay, well, we're not going to start until Murphy's here anyway. And then they all just left. And so really, it's not that everyone's late, is that they're all sort of brought to Murphy like a magnet, and she's the one that's late. And no one ever really figures it out. Yeah, I feel like Murphy is the, to really bring this into the now, yeah, the, I think there's something to the fact that she is the pa- the actual power behind the show, and there's no point in having a meeting until she's shown up. Yeah. So uh, Murphy shoves a bran muffin in Miles's face, which is only funny because you know Miles. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and demands that they get started. But then Miles, it dawns on him that if everyone's on time, that something must be up. And he really fears that something's going to happen to him. So Murphy, again, with her, her ego-driven demands that Miles ask her about her story. They need to start. Just ask her. Ask her. Miles definitely thinks this is some sort of trick. And Candace has this sort of great look on her face. It's like she's going to explode with excitement. She is about to explode with excitement. Also, her makeup looks fantastic. Oh, she looks so good in this episode. Yeah. Murphy says, oh, no, she's going to let someone else go first. You know, she doesn't want everyone to feel bad after her story by comparison. She is so smug. Mm-hmm. And at one point she goes, Jim? To which Jim just, just can't stop staring at Frank being so gross with the donut. He is distracting in the best way. He is. You're a mess, Frank. <laughs> Finally, Frank decides to go for it as he's kind of cleaning himself off of all the stickiness. And, Ugh. of course... As we may have guessed, Frank has the exact same story that Murphy was going to pitch. Yep. Uh, It seems that Frank, as we'll learn, so did Murphy, get an anonymous phone call that someone at the FAA is on the take from someone very high up at Bryden Aircraft. I love how when Murphy figures out, when she hears the Bryden Aircraft, she just sort of like turns her head, like as if she's going to give herself (laughs) whiplash to look at Frank. You can hear the balloon pop. Yeah. Uh, it seems Bryden has the contract for cargo door mechanisms, and that's when Murphy just has to go. This is a joke. You know, she's turning into her old self, which is a really great scene. And she continues that the doors didn't pass the test since they were approved. The approval was falsified. And Murphy demands that it was her story, as everyone congratulates Frank and just ignores her. Because, you know, that's Murphy. You're like, no, of course it's not. Oh, my God, Frank, that's great. No, it's my story. He's stealing my story. First my donut, now this. <laughs> I love it. They're immediately children. They really are. And then uh, Corky, through this entire scene, again, no peripheral vision, no no clue of what actually is happening, and goes, don't make a big deal about it, Murphy. Take my donut. <laughs> I also noticed she's got a new Corky mug. Yeah. Well, and also later we see Jim not using a regular mug, but a paper coffee cup. Huh. For whatever reason. The mug game is, is unique and unusual this episode. Yeah, maybe he didn't want to clean his mug from this morning. That's fair. I don't want to clean my mugs. You're right. But I'm starting to think that Corky just stencils her name on any mug. Because <laughs> it's the same font. I'm pretty sure. Maybe I'm wrong. But it just looks Maybe I'm, that's how she like stress relieves. She just sits in her, her office and stencils her name onto things. Yeah, I feel like she's a scrapbooker, right? Oh, yes. Totally a scrapbooker. Yes. She's crafty. Yeah. So Miles breaks in that this is not a problem because, it, of course, Frank and Murphy start fighting. Um, he doesn't see why the two of them can't work together on the story. They seem okay with it, uh, but they're really not. They're sort of kind of playing it, but not completely lying. It's a sort of great, I think, middle ground. Mm-hmm. Frank thinks it could be fun. Murphy thinks it could be productive. But Murphy brings up the elephant in the room, which is which one of them is going to do the story on air. And I wrote, ooh, competition. And Frank goes, yeah, I wonder how we decide which one. But everybody knows how, of course, they're going to decide it. Miles is smiling. 
And then as Frank and Murphy sort of turn to him slowly, his smile completely changes to constipation, concern, and fear. Yeah. To which Corky stands up, and I love what Faith does with the big arms, the Corky sort of, you know, big gestures. Well, it's simple. Whoever cracks the story first, God, do I have to do everything around here? Corky is over there crap today. This entire episode, actually, she is just like hands in the air, done with them. Yeah, but she, she doesn't really get subtlety. No, that's not her forte. Yeah. So we find ourselves later in Phil's. The door opens, Murphy walks in. I do like to point out that uh, the tables she walks by on her way in are just full of business dudes sitting. <laughs> I was just like, look at all these men in suits, just kind of a line of them that she walks past. Phil says hello to her. And as she's walking in and this hello is happening, you're hearing a uh, very specific type of music kind of serenading almost elevator style in the background. (laughs) As you're, I I would say as an audience, as you're starting to clue into this sound, that's when we pan over past the hero table over to where the booths are. And there's a man set up with a keyboard plunking away at some tunes. With some hair, by the way. With some hair, capital H. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's quite uh, it's a qu- luscious. It's a quaff. It is a quaff. Uh, so Murphy is intrigued by this, uh, turns back around and inquires to Phil. And he, he lets her know that, you know, this has always been known as a lunch place. But he's thinking that, you know, maybe a little entertainment might drum up some business at night. And, you know, in this opening of conversation with Phil, Murphy very quickly gets down to business and seats herself on the stool. And in Murphy's very... I would say at least casual approach <laughs> starts in on Phil. I mean, you know, everyone and classic it's Phil. He knows everyone starts to, I would say probably in the most saccharine way possible. Uh, talk about how he knows everyone He's connected to everyone. You know, he probably maybe even knows half the people in the FAA with a, you can see the little dot, dot, dot coming out of her mouth to which Phil very quickly shuts that down and says, what are you getting out here? And she's like, well, you know, she just needs, you know, to talk to somebody, you know, maybe get connected with someone who can point her in the way and the direction of someone who can maybe get her info on a major scandal at the FAA. Now, before we continue with this whole thing, I thought we might talk about Pat Corley. So Pat Corley, known for Phil in all his Philness, uh, we've been kind of waiting for a chance to talk about his bio. I know we've gone through a lot of the lead characters, but we wanted a chance. This seems like a, an appropriately Phil-centric yeah. kind of uh, situation. Really, the crux of a couple of these moments in this scene is the fact that Phil is Phil, and he knows everybody. So the creation of Phil begins and ends with Pat Corley and his genius. Pat Corley was actually born Cleo Pat Corley, which I think is just the most lovely name. I'm, I'm kind of, I get because of the characters he played, why he went with Pat Corley, it kind of suits his type. But the name Cleo is just so cool. And also that his name is not Patrick. I know. It's, mm, mm, I love it. Fun little Easter egg for everyone. It is assumed that the role of Pat Patel in the revival was named after Pat Corley. Yeah. So he was born in Dallas, Texas on June 1st, 1930. We actually find out that Phil was born in New Jersey. Jersey. But as a teenager, he was a ballet dancer for the Stockton Ballet for three seasons, which I love seeing normal shaped men and finding out that they were ballet dancers. It makes me so happy. Now I feel like there are things that I've missed in my life not seeing Pat Corley like pick Candace Bergen up in like some beautiful dramatic pose. Ah. <laughs> Just, I feel like I needed that. If somebody is artistically inclined and wants to make some fan art for us, I will frame that. So he served in the Korean War and he uh, went to college on the GI Bill. It's very interesting to me how many veterans we actually have in this show, this production, veterans and uh, veteran adjacent. 
after he went to school in NYC, he studied with Uta Hagen, which actually was fun for me to read. I uh, studied for a little bit in New York at the HB studio, which is connected to Uta Hagen. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Uta um, Hagen was the basis of my undergrad education. Actor Studio, right? Uh, no, actually, Actor Studio was... Oh, your undergrad, sorry. Undergrad, yeah. Uh, yeah. Actor Studio was my grad school. But no, I was going to say that uh, grad school was Strasbourg. Yes, that makes sense, yeah. yeah. Well, and speaking of Actor Studio, Pat was a lifetime member. Yeah, that was amazing. I can't believe I never knew that, considering mm-hmm. going to the Actor Studio. And that's a really big deal. And back then, there was no grad school. So the mm-hmm. only people who were going to the studio were people who were lifetime members. That's so cool. It makes sense to me that he that he studied with Uta Hagen based on the way that he connects with both his physical space and the actors around him. I see a lot of the fingerprints of that studying with him. His Broadway debut was Blues for Mr. Charlie. And it makes me really excited because uh, he, it was directed by Burgess Meredith, who I love forever. And I think beyond our age, uh, Burgess Meredith is a bit of an obscure pull for anyone younger than us. But he was such a part of my childhood growing up. And he was just this prolific, long-time, well-respected actor, and you need to go back and look at all the stuff he's done. In particular, at the end of his life, his roles in uh, Grumpy Old Men are some of the funniest things you've ever seen, because he is ridiculous. Oh, those outtakes? Oh, my at the gosh. End? Him and Jack Lemmon. <gasps> Just trying so to get So amazing. Stuff. And he's in a, a very famous episode of The Twilight Zone mm-hmm. about the guy who wants nothing but to read, and then the world ends, yeah. and he breaks his glasses. Oh, God. He's also in my favorite Christmas movie, uh, Uh, Santa Claus the movie in which he plays an ancient elf anyway that's Burgess Meredith but I love that he directed Pat Corley it's such a such a classic combo of very well-respected talented creators in this production there were also studio and tv alums such as Anne Wedgwood uh, which you might know from Tootsie Evening Shade and Three's Company Pat Hingle an amazing character actor he was Commissioner Gordon in the 90s Batman films also Murder She Wrote um, he was on, on the waterfront Rip Torn who not only being my lifelong favorite actor name ever of, and I'll say it again Rip Torn and he was married to Anne at the time yep yep. He, you might know him from Larry Sanders you might also know him from uh, the Men in Black the original Men in Black movies he plays like the lead agent he has you know very notable husky voice also, that production, you also had Diana Sands, who you might know from A Raisin in the Sun. Long story short, Pat Corley worked with the best of the best and was around for a very long time. Um, on stage, he worked with Al Pacino, James Earl Jones. Uh, he was in the revival of Sweet Bird of Youth with Irene Worth. Uh, he did a ton of TV, of course, Murder, She Wrote, My Beloved. Uh, he recurred on Hill Street Blues. He was a recurring role of Chief Coroner Wally Nydorf. He was in Roots. But tidbit about him, his proudest moment was when the Laurence Olivier called him up to say that he had seen him do one of his best pieces of TV acting in Hill Street Blues, which for Laurence Olivier to notice you. Yeah. (laughs) I know that was in his one of his obituaries. And I went, wow. Yeah, he's a legend. I mean, Olivier, but we're talking about Pat Corley. He's the legend. He died on September 11th, 2006 at the age of 76. So fairly young, actually. And upon his death, his son, Jerry, who is a stand-up comedian, told People Magazine that Phil was his favorite role. So some interesting things that Diane has said about the character, that that voice was all Pat, was all his idea. Mm. He felt that after years of running a, a smoky bar with no light, that Phil would talk like that, having to speak over the crowds, which I thought was so mm-hmm. great. And inhaling all the smoke fumes would just ruin his voice. And that he was meant to be the filing cabinet of Washington, sort of the deep throat of his error. It's very accurate. <laughs> yeah. So back to the very subtle conversation with Murphy. So 
Murphy needs a connection. Phil says it sounds like a tall order. To which Murphy decides to say, hey, Phil, when was, when was the last time you and Phyllis came over to my place for dinner? Never. Well, you know, it's about time that you do. You can't cook. Did I say cook? I meant treat you to a nice dinner at Sardella's. Phyllis likes Italian. And you see Phil starting to go, well, uh, and she's like, did I mention the bottle of Dom Perignon? And immediately Phil turns to the side and just goes, the guy's name is Sean Russell. Uh, he got squeezed out a few years ago. And blah, blah, blah. Uh, But that's about all he can tell her. Hands her a piece of paper. She's ready to go. And right as we're starting to wind down this excellent, you know, bit of journalistic integrity, Frank walks out of the bathroom looking at a piece of paper and thanking Phil profusely for his help. They lock so eyes. Do yeah. we assume that it's the same name, right? Oh, yes. Oh, Phil's the worst. Phil's the worst. <laughs> but he's got a he's got dinner at Sardella's and a burka lounger. That's true. I shouldn't say he's the worst because that's that's actually pretty smart. He they're taking advantage of him, so why shouldn't he take advantage of them? Exactly. Although, I don't know. I'm at first, I was like, it's obviously the same person. But if he is a filing cabinet of Washington, he could have given given them two different people. And they're getting the same story from two different people. You know, yeah, that's true. We, we actually we don't know. But he did have the name and number very readily available. Uh, so we see this like, you know, woo 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 standoff across the corner of the bar with Phil in the center. And Murphy's like, ah, Frank, what are you, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, I, you know, I just stopped in to see if my old pal Phil is doing okay. She's, oh, that's funny. I just stopped in to see if my old pal Phil is doing okay. To which Pat Corley gives my favorite line of this episode, which is there livestock in here? It is my absolute, it is my absolute favorite joke of the episode. It's it, uh, so great. It's so subtle. It actually took me, I'm embarrassed to say it took me a second. Oh yeah. Like, like a brief, when I went, Oh, that's so good. It's a poop joke. Uh, well, my favorite thing is that it's you can hear it in the audience that it's such a smart, intellectual poop joke and brown nosing <laughs> joke that you hear the laughter start because we're kind of holding on his face. And then it yeah. just grows as more and more people realize what the insinuation was. It's the laughs in the audience are hysterical at that moment. Yeah, I went, oh, bullshit. <laughs> Frank kind of gets himself out there and be like, oh, you know, uh, sorry, I, I'd stay around, but I have a really important appointment I have to get to, to which Phil sends him on his way with, uh, just don't forget that Burke lounger. So we find ourselves the next day in the FYI bullpen and we see Murphy Hart at work in a very periwinkle, very corky dress. Yes, that was my, it feels very out of place. Now that she doesn't look great in it, it just, for what we know, it's like they're kind of experimenting. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And every- That's exactly what I got. Every time I would see this picture, like, out of context, I would be like, that's, is that season one? But well, exactly. no. To me, it's, it's so interesting because I think it also stands out to me because this is the type of episode and what's happening right now is I was so prepared for, like, on the hunt, red Murphy shoulder pad kind mm. of look. And so to see her in this this outfit, I swear she's, it, it's like devil in, in blue dress. Like, it's, it's such a quirky and like the periwinkle and her hair is all delicate. Again, she looks great. I just, I, they were definitely trying something. And at least the scene is with Corky. So it feels like it's a little like. With her hair very different. I love it too. Yes. But they both sort of have kind of a little different vibe going on. I mean, for a second, because of what happens in this conversation, I started creating a headcanon that she dressed like Corky to woo Corky. <laughs> maybe subconsciously <laughs> yes to like have Corky be speaking into a mirror and listen to her and want to do this thing so what happens is she finds Corky and she says that she just got off the phone with Morton Hoyle at records which as I was just telling Lauren I kept rewriting in my notes as Morton Hoyle records 
And I was very confused as to why Murphy was trying to talk to a record company. She wasn't. They're not making music. Morton Hoyle is a person at records. Yeah, Murphy should not be making music. No, no, don't let Murphy appreciates. She partakes of the music. She does not make the music unless she's making music. Am I right? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So the reason she's speaking to records is that she's tracking down a few things for a backstory. And funny enough, Morton Hoyle really wants to meet Corky. And Murphy launches into her very saccharine false sincerity of and you know knowing what an open and friendly person you are i said of course you'd like to meet him and corky who is slowly but surely getting wise to these things says wait a minute murphy you said i'd like to meet someone who works three floors below street level is this some sort of a fix-up oh corky (laughs) i mean i can see corky wanting someone who gets a bit more sun Oh, that's funny. I didn't necessarily see it that way. I saw it as a money-making issue. Oh, I saw it as like he's a gremlin. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would make more sense. I Because I was surprised. I was like, Corky, you care more about how much he makes? Oh, yeah, no, I got that he's like a basement dweller. No, you're right. You're absolutely out. right. That's much more <laughs> kinder in, in, in vogue for, for Corky. <laughs> Our sweet Corky. And Murphy says, well, yeah, come on, Corky. The fresh air will do him good. To which one of my favorite Corky lines so far this season comes out, that she is shocked and disappointed in Murphy. It will be a cold day in H-E double hockey sticks before I'm the cheese in your mouse trap. It's like the one line I wrote down that she said that she spelled out hell. H-E uh, double hockey. It's so back home for me, that particular phrase. And as Corky storms away, Murphy cries after that, hey, I didn't promise him sex. And then we see Jim. <laughs> Hey, Jim. Jim seems to dart like a like a trapped mouse. Oh, yeah. Said mouse he, trap. It, it's such a great use of body language. And then later, oh. a little bit of the dialogue to suggest that this has been happening. Like, yeah, <laughs> if, if not like for a couple of days, but definitely like yeah. all day that he he feels very much stuck between Murphy and Frank and he can't, you know, have allegiance to any of them, really. And so it makes him uncomfortable. And then we see Jim. <laughs> hey, Jim. I said, uh. Jim seems to dart like a like a trapped mouse. Oh, yeah. Said mouse he, trap. It, it's such a great use of body language. And then later, oh. a little bit of the dialogue to suggest that this has been happening all day. Like, yeah, <laughs> if, if not like for a couple of days, but definitely like yeah. all day that he he feels very much stuck between Murphy and Frank and he can't, you know, have allegiance to any of them, really. And so it makes him uncomfortable. Well, and as we find out, uh, Murphy noticed that Jim went in the restroom and Frank was in there. And uh, she just wondered maybe what they uh, maybe what they were talking about in that that men's restroom where uh, Murphy could not join them. <laughs> Jim says he's trying to be as impartial as possible. Of course, he's a consummate professional. He knows exactly what they're doing. And so he says, since he is, he will absolutely share what Frank said to him in that bathroom, which was past the sports section. And we hear the customary ding of the elevator. The elevator opens and we find that Frank has been cornered by the world's happiest secretary, who is in the middle of a story. And he tries, as they're walking in, to brush her off that he has to go to a meeting. And she just gives him a, yeah, right. We find Frank and Murphy, the most awkward of hellos. I would say probably more awkward than when they tried to sleep together. Yes. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like there was such a, a mutual, no, this is wrong about the attempting to procreate 
that this is more awkward because this is a little more possible. I just, I just also, I just had a thought. They mm. both had the same objective, whether they wanted yes. to do it or not. They mm -hmm. were trying to power through it. Together. It's exactly, together, on the same side, whether they didn't want to really do it, so to speak, mm -hmm. the literal it. Uh, here, they're on opposition. Yeah, adversaries, they don't like yeah. it. And yeah, they don't like it, and they're not used to it, because they're nope. besties. And Frank says to Murphy that, you know, he hasn't seen her all day. She's been in her office with the blinds drawn and lots of secret phone calls. And he says, oh, that's interesting because his secretary uh, said that he got a phone call this morning and shot out of here like a bat out of hell. And they're just kind of eyeing each other. And finally, there's a big breath together. And Frank says, do you feel as stupid as I do? Murphy does. They discuss getting a drink together tonight. Murphy says she misses her old pal. Eight o'clock. And there's this pause. Eight is great. But do you notice her face? Oh, yeah. I love that small little thing. She obviously has some sort of plan, mm -hmm. and she's worried that she may not make it in time, but she also doesn't want Frank to think that she's making an excuse, so she says yes. Well, and what's really interesting about that moment, and that pause in particular, is that it's very clear, and this is just subtle acting on, on both of their part, mm -hmm. that it's not an intentional, I'm going to screw you over. No, not plan. at all. It's it's very clearly loaded and that there's a that they are torn, but not from a mustache twisting, I'm gonna get you, which is why the payoff in what happens in the rest of the episode is so good because you do see an a true desire to truce. Yeah, which shows a lot for Murphy, I think, mm -hmm. and how much she loves Frank, which we all know. Oh, but yeah. I, uh, she wouldn't do that for anyone. Oh, no. So we cut two fills. <laughs> I have so many feelings about this scene. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, it's hard because I think a lot of it are feelings I'm supposed to feel on purpose. Yes. Even though I, they're bad, uncomfortable, icky feelings. Yeah, they did that to us on purpose. <laughs> yes, they did. Mm -hmm. uh, great casting, I must say, uh, because the actor, Fred Trevelina, if you grew up in the 80s, you recognize him because he did a lot of stand-up. Oh, yeah. And it's it's funny because I thought, oh, and he must have done a lot of television. And I checked his IMDb and not as much. I think there was just so much stand-up that it was everywhere. And people like him, like Judy, Judy Tanuna, <laughs> Rita, <laughs> Rita Rudner, Elaine Boozler, you know, names mm -hmm. that you just saw as a kid all the time, whether they were on like Johnny Carson or mostly just on these specials. HBO was starting to do stuff. I was going to say, like you bring up Johnny Carson, like that was a huge part of of household entertainment was when Carson had a new comic do a set and then waiting to see if they would sit down. Like there was a whole pop yeah. culture event around stand-up. You could be an overnight sensation if you went on Carson mm -hmm. and almost completely if he called you over to the desk, which was I mean, a big deal. Ellen DeGeneres. Yeah, on her first time. Sometimes, yeah. you know, most of the time it wasn't your first time. Mm -hmm. So, and we've talked about Johnny Carson in the pop culture of the time before, but this is, I think, a whole different kind of an element and it really was sort of uh, kingmakers. Mm -hmm. He knighted people, so to speak, and oh, ma yes. minted their careers. Seinfeld, another great example. So he plays a lounge Las Vegasy comic singer named Don Sarasota, who is horrible. Horrible. And Phil knows he's horrible. Now, why? I don't understand why Phil doesn't just fire him. <laughs> I, truly, what, what does he, ha like, obviously nobody has anything on Phil, because Phil has something on everybody, but yeah. what, what is stopping Phil 
from this. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he feels like he already paid him. Yeah. I, He's getting uh, what he paid for. <laughs> I, I, I kind of wish there had been a scene where he was like, you're fired. And he went, no, I'm not. And then he just wouldn't stop. <laughs> He's like, I, kn- I know, Phil, what you're thinking, but the next hour is free on me. Like, he wouldn't have, like, any concept as to the... Because he doesn't get that Phil hates him as well, which we all get. Mm-hmm. He Phil heckles him. Yep. Phil's face. I've never seen Phil be that upset and confused and disgusted <laughs> before. All of those things in one look. Yeah. He doesn't get, uh, as we'll go on, that Frank is not happy to talk to him. He is definitely in his own tunnel vision, Don. Mm-hmm. So I was just a little sort of taken aback. Unless maybe, hey, maybe it's cut from our copy and we don't know it. Ooh, good call. There might be a section where he fires him and he won't leave, but... Oh, please say yes. Yeah, but there's something there was missing that I was like, I feel like I'm missing something as to why he doesn't just kick him out. Hmm. But anyway, so so he's singing They Call Me Mellow Yellow. <laughs> Speaking of yellow, someone over at the bar looks a little blue-blue. Mm-hmm. So it's Frank just sitting there waiting with his beer and Frank does not want to be cheered up and uh, Don feels that it's his job to uh, cheer Frank up and there's a little piece of business that I absolutely love is that Don has a microphone and so every time he kind of talks to Frank he puts it in his face so that all of a sudden Frank's voice gets loud yeah through the entire it's so awkward and so funny and I just loved every time it went it got really loud Uh, (laughs) it was just a really great thing I feel like this is the kind of scene that in the writer's room, they just kind of really loved oh, and yeah. had a little too much fun with. Because as a kid, I absolutely hated it. But now as an adult, I get why it's bad. I totally get it. Yeah, And it, I actually kind of really enjoy it, but it also mm-hmm. makes me uncomfortable at the, at the same time. I feel like this is the type of joke that is funny if you have lived through these moments. And as a kid, you just have not yeah. had these type of life experiences. But as an adult, you ju- it's the pain is so funny and real. It's very cathartic to watch. (laughs) So Don feels that Frank has come to the right place, which is, you've come to the right place. Phil's at night, which he repeats quite often throughout the entire, yeah, so many. Phil's at night. It's strong branding. I'll give him that. True, right? (laughs) And he always has a tagline, too. This time it's, where the lonely become unlonely. (laughs) Oh, I'm making that t-shirt. Yes, Phil's at night, where people meet other people. Uh, he's so creative, Don. You can see why he's so successful. He eventually uh, pulls an egg out of Frank's ear as much as Frank is like, please go away. I'm actually waiting for someone. No one believes him. Much like later on in the last season when no one believes that Frank has a girlfriend because no one's met her. No one believes that Frank actually is waiting for someone. Except, of course, we know he's waiting for Murphy. Mm -hmm. So Don takes the egg out of Frank's ear no one is happy about this, Phil or Frank. And then he throws the egg to Phil, who follows it with his eyes, where it falls on the ground behind the bar. Oh, bless. And he goes, Lasorda taught me that. <laughs> Speaking of the Dodgers, and then sings Rhinestone Cowboy. Great Spe- song. Sp- great segue. Bad choice. Speaking of the Dodgers, it's so ridiculous. So Phil screams at Frank because he's just so upset because the man is an idiot. Frank asks Phil what time it is, which is, of course, so the audience can get a sense how late Murphy is. It's 8.15. Uh, she is 15 minutes late. So Phil says that if, if the singer doesn't stop soon, he's going to have to install speed bumps to keep the people from running out of here. So Frank pretty much thinks that he's been duped 
and that Murphy is out there looking for the anonymous caller and he's just here waiting here like an idiot. Uh, to which Phil yells at Don, sit down, you bum, you're making my ears bleed, which I wrote in all caps, Phil, just fire him. Just fire him. Frank says that if this is how it's going to be, he's going to have to get down the dirt with her. So much for friendship. He's out. He has things to do. But Phil isn't really paying attention. No. So he, so, which is important to how he relays the message to Murphy later. Yeah. Don asks if uh, anyone wants to hear any impressions, to which Phil yells, Salman Rushdie, <laughs> which is one of my favorite jokes of the episode, <laughs> next to the, uh, the bullshit joke. Did you want to talk about Salman Rushdie really quick? Sure. So, uh, sir, I'm going to say his full name, Sir Ahmed Salman Rushdie is a British Indian novelist and essayist. I think right now he's 71. Yeah, he's a he's a staple of like 1980s, 1990s pop culture for me. And maybe it's because I was raised by uh, major intellectuals. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this is a joke that in a different wordage is made throughout the 80s a lot. Like mm-hmm. that's how I first learned who Salman Rushdie was because of the jokes. Yeah. I, he's an icon. His second novel won the Booker Prize in 1981. That was Midnight's Children. I think I probably knew of, of his works. I probably knew his fourth novel. That was the Satanic Verses. Yeah. From 1988. The best because it was subject of a major controversy. Yes. Hence the um, joke. Yes. So, and this is obviously time period wise, very recently after. He does currently live in the United States now. In 2012, he actually published Joseph Anton, a memoir, which is an account of his life in the wake of the controversy over the Satanic Verses. So the Satanic Verses in particular, it provoked protests from Muslims in uh, several countries, death threats were made against him, and most famously, a fatwa was issued calling for his assassination um, from the at the time, the Supreme Leader of Iran. And that happened in February of 1989. So that's very close to when this show started. So the Satanic Verses, for those who are not aware, a brief overview is that it's essentially inspired by the life of Muhammad. And as with his previous works, he used magical realism and relied on contemporary events and people to create characters. The title refers to Satanic Verses, a group of Quranic verses that refer to three pagan Meccan goddesses. The part of the story that deals with Satanic Verses was based on accounts from historians. And because of the way that this brought that into and included imagery and and stories of that particular faith, it upset a lot of people within the faith as uh, sacrilegious and as uh, spreading incorrect information. It's a very complicated controversy. It was banned in India as hate speech directed towards specific religious groups. So um, wanting a an impression of Salman Rushdie is... <laughs> Very 1980s, 1990s. Fun fact, when I was an undergrad, he came to my uh, my school and spoke in North Dakota. Oh, how cool. It was very cool. I was like, Salman Rushdie. And I think I was the only person my age who knew or cared. <laughs> but I'm sure my mother was very proud. <laughs> On a, a little bit of pop culture note, he was one of the last people to see Carrie Fisher before she yes. passed. Because yeah. they were very good friends. You know, Carrie's not afraid of controversy. No, no. And I'm sure that they both had a very uh, a sharp wit. That oh, they yes. could keep up with each other. Salman Rushdie is an, a highly intelligent man. I feel like it's funny. Uh, certain jokes make me think of certain errors, particularly in television, because although also in some film. So either this joke or a joke about the, the Shroud of Torin when they found hey. it. <laughs> yeah, that sends me back in particular. Right, yeah. There's definitely a joke about the Shroud of Torin in Murphy Brown. And then there's one in the movie Sabrina with a Harrison Ford version. Oh, Oh, yes. 
So Don then proceeds to do an impression of Phil, which is actually pretty good, but no one really likes someone they don't like with, or don't think is funny doing an impression of them. No, impressions are most commonly uh, consumed when it comes from love. Yes. Also, uh, I should comment that people are leaving intermittently. So Murphy runs in out of breath. She asks for Frank. Phil, again, is really not listening. He is absorbed with Don and how bad, bad Don is. And she asks where Frank is. She can't believe that, that he left. And, and Phil just remembers kind of the last thing that Frank said was, he goes, oh, well, he had things to do. So that makes it sound really sort of flippant. And Phil's the kind of person who people have full out conversations with and listens and remembers. So, of course, Murphy's going to take this as gospel. Mm-hmm. She can't believe that she's 15 lousy minutes late and he left. She couldn't find her keys. She had to retrace her steps. She was on her hands and knees in the parking lot. Murphy looks at Don and says, God, Phil, this guy stinks. Oh, geez, Murphy. Thanks for pointing that out to me. She's so insightful. I know. He's really just had it. Murphy thinks that Frank left because he's on to something, hence things to do. She also thinks that he found the anonymous caller. Uh, what I love... Okay, so this is a really great moment, and I... You can only guess that somehow they came up with this piece of business because there is popcorn on the bar, uh-huh. which where there usually isn't popcorn. Now, if there were pretzels, I might go, okay, but this seems very delivered to a piece of business that was created, but I love it, is that Murphy is really, really upset and pissed and also trying to think of what Frank could be up to. Well, she's eating popcorn, and there's something about behavior when you're doing an activity. Uh-huh. In fact, it reminds me a bit, and I, I want to say that it's a movie that Candace did called Rich and Famous, but I may be wrong. But in many interviews, Diane has said that, you know, one of the reasons at the beginning that she really thought that Candace Brooking could do this, uh, among many reasons, was she watched her eat corn chips in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> and she said it was funny. <laughs> Even yeah. though Rich and Famous is not a comedy, but it reminded me of that, is that Candace Bergen is funny eating popcorn. Yeah, I'm telling you, like, and this might just be because I've been immersed in a lot of Meisner recently mm-hmm. for our acting nerds, but there is something about having a truthful activity that's happening at the same time that brings out a lot of subtext that if you have somebody who's connected to what they're doing, whatever the tiny activity in, that is taking up their hands, it it tells a full story. You can get so much of what's happening underneath out of just what's up. Like I think of so many times there, I forget which actor it is, but every time that they are eating in a movie and are stressed, they turn into a tiny squirrel. <laughs> and it's so particular. And you're just like, oh my goodness, because we do, we, we eat differently, we hold pens differently. And when you see an actor who's really locked into who they are, it comes out on their activities. Yeah, it's funny because of the objective that Candace seems to have, mm-hmm. that she's thinking while she's doing it. It's yep. not just because she's eating it in a funny way. It's funny because of the circumstances. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so Phil, not really again, sort of in this conversation, um, feels that a jury would understand if he jumped over the bar and choked him to death. Murphy says that she'd love to hang around, but she's not going to let him get the best of me. Investigative reporter, huh? We'll see about that. And so as she's leaving, which is one of my favorite parts of, of the scene, is Don goes, speaking of pretty ladies, it's Murphy Brown. Oh. And she just looks, I don't think she even looks, I think she just turns and slams the door. Yep. Uh, perfect reaction to Don, really. Yes, yes. Um, my reaction to Don, but not Fred. Fred is a lovely actor. Only a good comedian can play a bad comedian. True. So we find ourselves back in the bullpen. And the secretary has now cornered Corky. 
telling her that, you know, there was a dull thud behind her ear. It started this morning. It's probably stress. Her ex-husband is driving her out of her mind. And at that moment, Jim walks in from camera right. And Corky says, Jim, have you met Murphy's new secretary? Why did you two just chat and takes off? Corky, she's she's learning. And Jim just kind of goes, how goes it? And the secretary just explains, oh, not so great. She's had a headache all morning. To which Jim gives my other favorite line of this episode, which is, well, better get checked. Could be a brain tumor, you know. And then he starts to walk away with this tiny little smirk on his face. Oh, it's the best. Oh, Jim, my wonderful little imp. It's so uncharacteristic yet characteristic at the same time. Brain tumor, you know. He's so proud of himself. So proud. And what it is is that it works because it's Jim. Because that delivery... If anybody else said that to her, it wouldn't have shut her up. But Jim Dial saying that. I also just want to point out that he's holding a paper coffee cup, and it's very confusing. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the next episode that we're doing is about the environment and, and about using mugs all the time. Um, I also appreciate at this moment, like, not only do we clearly understand that Jim was ready for the secretary, but also the audience applause after he drops the brain tumor line and walks away goes for quite a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's a the audience that needed that as much as Jim did so we pan over as he's walking away and we catch Murphy's office and uh, Frank is leaving and he's yelling at okay okay Murph I'll get back to you on that great idea (laughs) Murphy please forget that silly diet of yours we'll go and like just talking big old ham into the office as Murphy's walking up behind him toward Mm -hmm. her office hi Frank (laughs) oh hi Murphy I didn't see you there this stuff always makes me uncomfortable for some reason sometimes like as much as I loved Frasier sometimes things would happen that were so farcical that like I as a kid I would get really uncomfortable (laughs) and close my eyes (laughs) Because uh, it's so obvious that Frank is going to get caught because he's hamming it up so much. So, so much. And even when they're on good terms, we know they don't talk to each other that way. And uh, he says, hey, Murphy, I didn't see you at Phil's because he was there at 8. And she said, well, no, I was there unless you meant 8 a.m. Because I wasn't even in town at 8 a.m. And we're starting to hear this building aggression in her voice. Murphy brings up that apparently Frank figured someone might have wanted to tail him. And so he dressed his neighbor up in his clothes and put him in his car and drove to Baltimore. (laughs) And he wants to know why she was following him. And she says, well, why were you in my office? What's in your hand? And as this conversation is happening, they make their way into the office and Frank wants to know what's going on at the zoo. Is it perhaps the anonymous caller? Oh, and he says he might drop by the zoo at around 11 o'clock. And she says, well, don't forget to visit your re- your relatives at the reptile house. And they start to have this wonderful back and forth where he's like, well, I mean, unless my best friend, because again, we're just ramping on this best friend line. Yeah. So my best friend planted this note hoping her best friend would find it. And he says, you think I've been in therapy the last few years so you can play your little mind games on me? And Murphy does the best, darn it all. You figured it out. I didn't realize who I was up against. So they're having this little standoff. And he goes, you are going to the zoo, aren't you? You think I think it's a fake, but in fact, it's real. By this point, they're making, they've made their way out to the elevator. He's basically chasing her everywhere. And he says, no, mi amigo Frank Fontana is wise to your lies, four eyes. <laughs> <laughs> they become children when they fight. It's, it's adorable because they're so brother and sister. They are. And what I like is that now we're in front of the elevator. They're staring at each other. Bing, the elevator opens. And Murphy says, Frank, whatever you do, don't quit therapy. Yeah. And it's interesting that Frank says he's only been in therapy for a couple of years. Uh And I I feel like he's said earlier that it was longer or I I don't know if I just assume it that it's he's been in therapy for so long. 
Yeah, I've lost track of my therapy timeline for Frank. Yeah, I can't remember if I just subconsciously put that in because it made sense in my head. Someone let us know. I feel like in the first season he talks about how long he's been in therapy, but maybe I'm wrong. We've done so many episodes, it starts to blur. All right, so we cut to a dirty old bus stop, which I wrote looks like a leftover set from Night Court. It does, doesn't it? Everything was so dirty on Night Court. Uh, So we see a guy waiting with a folder. So, of course, we're going to assume this is probably the source. It looks like he's probably been waiting for a while. And Murphy just barges in and runs right into him. Things go flying. Um, Murphy's so sorry she's late. He's super jumpy, like really uncomfortable, probably because he's been waiting so long and he's afraid he's going to get caught. But Murphy had to make tons of detours uh, so she wasn't being followed. He says he's been working at Brighton for 15 months. And if they find out he's fired or they're going to have him killed, either way, it's going to affect his income. Yes, you know, yes. one way or the other. Of course, smart guy. So he tries to get away. Murphy runs after him. Um, the yelling gets a little loud. I love the fact that Murphy realizes how loud she is. So she kind of lowers her voice and they look around and move into the corner. Like it's really well done with the body language. So Murphy really tries to appeal to his conscience by reminding him, you know, how is he going to feel when one of the cargo doors fails and, and innocent lives are lost? Uh, and then, of course, Frank comes in like a torpedo. Get it, guy? Like a torpedo. I'm good. I just thought of that on the spot just now. I just, I'm proud of myself here. But um, He knew she wasn't at the zoo, and he is so mad. He gestures towards the informant, like he's almost like, like kind of like touching him, like really hard. Everything to make someone who would be shy or uncomfortable even more uncomfortable about being there. Murphy can't believe that he found her. And Frank comments, especially because someone took the air out of his tires. Who could it be? Frank apparently was in her trunk the entire time. With her gym shoes and a rotting head of lettuce, he's guessing she brought in late 85. Oh, yeah. To which she goes, you hid in my trunk? A grown man hiding in a person's trunk? You think Mike Wallace ever hid in a trunk? (laughs) Probably. I mean, you know, you never know. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe. And they have this great sort of reel back and forth. You know, one of my favorite things about the show is when they have this overlapping fights where you can kind of hear you know, oh, bits yeah. and pieces of each line that they're saying, and it becomes sort of this cacophony of, of sound. Apparently, through this fight, we find out that Murphy called security to report Frank for stealing his own typewriter. Frank paid off uh, Ernie the janitor. I think this is the second time we've had Ernie the janitor mentioned. Apparently, there's one janitor, but he's everyone's favorite, uh, to go through Murphy's trash. I wrote, they fight so much, they've frightened off the big game. <laughs> the deer has gone off into the woods. <laughs> the, the informant is gone. So we cut to the townhouse, and descending from on high down the stairs is Eldon. He's wearing a delicate pale blue robe. A robe, by the way, that we've never seen Murphy wear. Doesn't seem like... No, no. Doesn't seem like Um, a robe that Murphy would wear. No, it seems like a special robe. It's a joke robe. (laughs) It's very delicate and somehow very Eldon in many ways. I feel like this is such a bit of an 80s joke that we see a lot that we wouldn't normally see today in today's times, which is put a man in a very frilly nightgown or robe and it's funny. Yep. But he he pulls it off. He really does. He's also still wearing his socks and winged shoes um, and proceeds to bring himself into the living room, turn on some opera and sit on the couch. And we hear the characteristic... Murphy comes in screaming Eldon's name. Multiple times. To which Eldon raises his head and goes, and then there came the plaintive scream of a marmoset in heat. <laughs> and Murphy approaches him and says, why are there paint cans on the porch and why are you in my bathrobe? He goes, ah, a two-parter. He's so good in this scene. <laughs> 
Eldon in the scene is one of my favorite things. He says, the cans are patiently waiting to be taken by me to the dump, and I ripped my overalls. Or would you prefer I do my sewing butt naked? Because what I forgot to mention is that he sits down on the couch in the bathroom holding a set of overalls with a needle. Yes, and I, I think we've learned some information that uh, he doesn't wear underwear. I mean, I yes. feel like that's sort of on brand for Eldon. It's very on brand. He's a free man. He also then says that he works for a Philistine. At that moment, Frank arrives at the townhouse, and I would say looking nothing less than sheepish. Murphy wants to know what he's doing there. Clearly not happy to see him still. He says, uh, your dry cleaning will be ready tomorrow. Hands her the, the claim check and says he found it in her trunk. Mm. Also, her spare is low. And finally says, actually, I came by to apologize. And he says some, he gets too competitive. He needs to be the first one there to win. To which Murphy says, I know. I get that way, too. He says, I know. <laughs> and then Murphy, what do you mean, you know? It's a lovely little moment. As much as they balance each other, they they definitely, when it comes to work, have the same personality. Yeah, they're too much alike, and they should never be against each other on a story. <laughs> to that end, Frank suggests, let's work on the story together. You and me, two driven, aggressive, neurotic, compulsive overachievers, will crack the sucker wide open. Murphy's very excited. The phone rings. Hi, Miles. What's up? Why? She says, okay. And she says, he wants us to turn to Channel 9 right now. And we find out that Ted Koppel scooped him. Is it just me or I kept thinking of like the modern version of this? Like I was waiting for that to kind of happen in the show in a way because the modern version of this would be, hey, I just emailed, I just texted you a link. Take a look at this. Yeah. Because it would just be online instantly. Yeah, this is, I, I feel honestly like this is the, um, what Ted Koppel does in this, in this episode is what Avery did in the revival. Yes. Oh, truck. good call. Yeah, it was getting video right away and getting it out there as, as soon as possible. They took too long and they actually lost their channel, the story, by going up against each other and holding it back. And that gave Ted Koppel the chance to swoop in and get it. Yeah, if they hadn't been so competitive with each other and not worked together like we all should. So there's a very simple moral mm -hmm. to the end of this episode. They wouldn't have been... It's about the greater good people. Yeah, they wouldn't have been scooped if maybe their egos hadn't gotten in the way. And in this moment of devastation for the two of them, Eldon examines his needlework and pronounces... Everything I touch turns to art and <laughs> takes off. They both apologize to the other one, taking fault for how this didn't happen. And then somehow in the back and forth, it becomes Miles' fault. Of course. <laughs> Frank says, you know what? We should get, a, get his garden hose, stick it through the mail slot, turn it on full blast and run like hell. They're going to punish him. And Murphy says, nah, they've already done that. Better idea. As they're heading out the door, she says, get a sheep, get two pairs of high heels. Frank goes, I love it. And they're off. Poor Miles. So uh, the secretary, who, by the way, is secretary number 25. Wow. We're only on uh, episode six. Only on 25. Of season two. And we're on secretary 25. Oh, funny. I was like, we're only on secretary number 25. No, that's what. Oh, oh, really? Oh, funny. <laughs> it feels like more. Two ways to look true. at it. True. Hey, glass half empty, half full, right? Mm -hmm. Andrea Stein is secretary number 25, and she's an award-winning actress and writer. Most people might remember her. I don't, unfortunately. I feel really bad. I feel like I need to see the sketch, but she was in some of the sketches on In Living Color. Uh, but she's also done a lot of guest spots. She was on New Heart. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, Fred Trevelina passed away from cancer in 2009. Yeah. Are you following us on social media? Are you? Are you following us on social media? Do you have social media? Why don't you have social media? All the kids are doing it. All the all the kids. 
some of us some of us kids are doing less and less of it depending <laughs> on what's happening in the world but if you are on it and you are interested we are there and we're at murphy brown pod on twitter instagram and facebook everywhere. everywhere also are you subscribing to the podcast when you subscribe to the podcast you don't have to go look for it it will automatically download into your phone or place of choice if you like to listen on your computer i personally like my phone i love to wake up in the morning and see all my podcasts just sort of load in and then i have commute stuff to listen to it's super exciting and i'm super excited because our next episode features someone that i talk about a lot oh who could that be uh jerry gold oh the gold jerry yes that yes guy. gold comma jerry <laughs> and i think a lot of people are excited about this you know we've talked about the character of Jerry Gold and we're finally going to get him played by an actor in the series. This is going to be Jay Thomas's first episode. Yes. And we'll see you soon for another edition of FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. Uh-huh.